Well, good morning, everyone. We are in a part eight study of John 17. And of that study, part four on sanctification. Just on verse 17, first five words of verse 17, sanctify them. Actually, two words, sanctify them. We have not gotten to the part about truth yet. And I don't foresee that happening at least for a week or two. When I first began preaching, I thought to myself, man, what am I going to say? Will I have enough things to say to last me a few weeks in ministry, let alone months and years? But as I study the Word of God and plumb the depths of it, the riches of truths that are contained within, I find myself having too much to say and having to edit and cut out and uh, uh, just give you the, the best portions of its truths. Um, and that is my dilemma this morning, and that's my dilemma for weeks to come, that there is too much about sanctification in the Word of God that God wants us to know and grow in, and yet I don't want to belabor the point and um, provoke some of you to anger by staying in verse 17 for the rest of the year. So please be in prayer for me. This past week, I came upon a quote by C.S. Lewis, and uh, it was very profound, and the implications were so, uh, so various. I, I share it with you this morning to start our study. He said, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. How little people know who think that holiness is dull, that people who think holiness is boring, it's dull, it's uninteresting, how little they really know about holiness. Because when one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. A holy life, it is beautiful, it is sweet, it's desirable, it is attractive. I'm not talking about someone who is just reading the Bible all the time. I'm not talking about someone who is always praying. I'm talking about someone who lives in the real world, the world that you live in. World of 8 to 5 work, world of traffic jams, the world of, you know, many deadlines, the world of financial concerns, family issues, the world of the real world, and yet they live in this world and they live it according to the Word of God. They live in purity. They live set apart. They, love, they live in holiness. Blaise Pascal echoes that same idea as he said, The serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. Here is a man who, who understood calculus at the age of 14. I'm 32. I, I don't understand algebra 2. Here's a guy at age 14, you know, figured out like 30-second rule of some... Uh, uh, calculus guy, and he says the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God is the serene beauty of a holy life. And that is my heart this morning to start our, our, our study. I want to motivate you to sanctification. I want to inspire everyone to holy life, not by a sword, not with a whip, but with dark chocolate, you know, with a nice savory meal, with the sweetness of the holy life. I want all of us to see how desirable it is 
to each and every believer in this room. And I am vexed here to do that. I am, I'm a, I have a dilemma because what inspires me to holy living, what, when I, what causes me to desire a holy life is when I see it with my own eyes. When I read church history, it's powerful to me, but it is not as inspirational to me. I, what inspires me is when I see personally holy life in action. But I can't come and preach the Word of God and share about myself. Right? I, that would not be right, the few instances when I've lived you know, in, in purity. And I am hard-pressed to share about people in, the, people in the church because they might feel awkward, they might feel uncomfortable if I call out people and examples. that I've, So many examples that I've seen in our church of men and women living in holy lives. So, uh, I've, I've chosen today, um, uh, again, you know, going back to Pastor Peter Smith, an example that I saw this past summer, and I know he would agree. He does not want to be admired. I share this with you, not so that we would admire him or impersonate him in any way, but so that we would praise God who gives grace to such sinners, and also that we might imitate his faith. The last thing we want is a celebrity mentality in the Christian world, in our church, where we, you know, in a way, impersonate people and wrongly admire people in the church and even our missionaries as well. But I want to share with you an experience that I had with Peter Smith. And that experience I saw, and I experienced the desirability of sanctification in my own life. If you were here a few months ago, and we had a missions report after Czech Republic, and I was sharing about 10 minutes, and I told you there's a thing that happened with Peter that I want to share with you, but the story was too long. Well, that long story I'll share with you this morning. Oh, here we go. Um, Peter put uh, our family up in a motel about, it's called a pension, about 10 minutes from where, where he lives. And it's a small motel with about 12 to 15 separate rooms. And because it's so small, there is no clerk on duty 24 hours a day. Uh, the owner comes in the morning, 7 o'clock, and leaves around 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Well, we, we stayed there after the English camp. We stayed in that pension upstairs. We had a room to ourselves, another room for our daughters. Well, about three nights before we were to head back to the States, after a long day of, I think, going to Prague and doing various things, we came home around 10.30 at night, washed up the girls, put the girls to sleep, it was around 11.30, Sern and I were just kind of talking about the day and just planning for the next day. And then all of a sudden, we hear rumbling downstairs. Some guy is making a lot of noise. And then we hear this guy walking up the stairs, and what he's doing is he's trying on, trying his keys on all the doors that are upstairs. And then we hear a rumbling sound, apparently found out later, he fell down the stairs, not the whole way, but at least several steps, and he walks back up. And next thing we know, it's about midnight, and we look at our door, and it is moving. So this guy is trying his key on our door. He, I'm, I'm there. I look at my cell phone that you know, someone on our team gave to me, and I try to call, and the money ran out. You know, you pay as you go. So I couldn't call anybody. It's midnight, so I, and there's no people in this pension. So I opened the door. And there's a 40-year-old Czech guy who is drunk. He is plastered. He is gone. And 
He's so drunk, he had thrown up and he had soiled himself. Right? He couldn't control himself, so he soiled his pants. I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm a dad, I got my wife and two daughters. Like, do I kill this guy? I'm serious. Like, do I, like, take him down? What do, I, do I wrestle him to the ground? And, you know, I, I've been studying Czech for a few weeks, and only one word comes to my mouth, which is ne, right? Which is no in Czech. And beyond that, I don't know any of the Czech words. He doesn't know any English, and he's drunk. And I'm saying, Ned, this is, in English, this is not your room. So we, I slam the door, lock it again. Well, he goes downstairs, and he comes walking up again. And what does he do? He tries to open our door again with that key. And so I, I open the door, and I'm, I'm getting angry. I'm thinking, like, this guy's drunk. I don't know what to expect. I kind of yell at him. And I take this key and I try the other doors upstairs. And this key is the key to the motel, but it doesn't work for any of the rooms upstairs. So I'm saying, this key is not for any of the upstairs rooms. Go downstairs. But he doesn't understand me. And I, don't, I can't speak Czech. I close the door again. I look at Sarin. What am I to do? It's 1230. Um, and I first second, Sarin, stay here. I'll get our car, drive to Peter's house, get Peter, and I'll, bring, I'll come right back. And one look in my wife's face, I could tell right away, not a good decision. <laughs> right? Leave my wife and my daughters in a motel with a drunk guy in the halls. So God granted me grace. We'll all go. So we pick up our daughters, right? And then we run past him in the hallway. He's so drunk, doesn't know what's going on. We get in our car, open the gate. We drive 15 minutes to Claudno. And then we're at Peter's house, and I'm throwing rocks against his window to wake him up. I'm ringing the doorbell. The boys' room's right here, so the door's open. I'm like, you know, yelling out their names, like Joshua, Matthew, and the kids are out. After about 10 minutes, the light opens up, and Peter wakes up, and Peter's like, what's going on? And I explain the whole scenario to Peter. And so Peter gets up, he takes his van, I trail behind, and we come back to the motel, the tension, and the lights are on. We go in, and he's doing the same thing. He's still trying to find his room. Peter gets on the cell phone, calls the owner of the pension, and finds out his room is not upstairs. His room is downstairs, the corner room. He's so drunk, he forgot where his room was. So Peter gets his door, talks to him in check, and then he lets himself, opens the door and, and puts him in. This is about 1.30, 2 in the morning. The drama is finally over. Like, it's, I, I, I'm thinking it's done. And Peter said the owners are coming now to clean up. The hallway, the lobby, is, it smells horrible because he had sold himself several times on the stairs and on the lobby floor, like um, a marble lobby floor. So you could see puddles of his, you know, urine on the floor. You could, it smelled terrible. I'm thinking, great, Peter. The owners are coming. You know, let's, let's, uh, I'm ready to put our kids to sleep and go down. And Peter gets a rag and starts to wipe the floor of the man's, you know, urine off the floor with a rag and starts to clean after him. And for a second, I'm thinking... Peter, what are you doing? Oh, don't do that. Because I have to do that. <laughs> right? I can't stand here to watch you. I, I gotta get down there and do it too. Do it too. For a brief second, that's what I was thinking. 
And then I joined him. And as I was cleaning, I was like, man, this is amazing. I, I would, if I was by myself, I would never do this. I was, I'm thinking, this is not my problem. This is the owner's problem, right? This is that guy's problem. He should be cleaning this, not me. But seeing him clean that up, and we're doing that 15 minutes, and afterwards, he was, Peter was so apologetic as we were washing our hands in the restroom. And, and I was like, Peter, this will make a great illustration. And he was thinking, yeah, about that guy, about guys in sin, how you know, drunk they are and so forth. I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking, illustration about you. And in that moment, I saw the beauty of a holy life, right? The sweetness of a sanctified life. I mean, here's a guy who struggled with the dishes at home, right? Here's a guy, I come home after work, it's my time. I want to relax. I want my wife to serve me. I want my children to cater to me. I'm just filled with selfishness and pride and, and self-focus. And to see someone be sanctified, set apart from his own selfishness to that degree was a beautiful sight to see. I share that with you and hope that that heart, that, that description is beautiful to you. Blaise Pascal, the serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world, next to the power of God. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. I hope that such sanctification is irresistible to you this morning. I hope that you're saying in your own hearts, I want to be holy. I want to be that Christ-like. I want to be a servant. I want to be such a sanctified husband, wife, mom, father, Christian, brother or sister. That's the kind of life that I want to have. Listen to David Brainerd. He said in his diary, Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain, it makes my soul press after God. And I love the way he put it, pleasing pain. What Pastor Jason said, holy sweat. It is difficult, but there is a gladness there. There is a joy there because of the result of our pain causing us to grow in holiness. So it is to that end. We continue to study sanctification because we want in our lives practical sanctification. We want practical holiness. We don't want to live in heaven. We're not there yet. We want to live in the world but live in such a manner that it is clear we are citizens of heaven. To start our study or to continue our study, the starting point of this morning's study is to look at the enemy of our sanctification. We want to know and understand the enemy of our sanctification. Taking a few steps back, after a four-part study, we read a book by J.C. Rao this week, and we want to take a few steps back to look at, um, want to understand Sin. Understand our enemy, sin in our flesh. Any believer who is serious about practical holiness must begin 
by examining the vast and grave doctrine of sin. This is the starting point. You and I want to be holy. We have to look at our sins. J.C. Ralph said, He must dig down low if he wants to build high. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of true holiness. A right view of sin and one's sinfulness is essential to gaining and growing in sanctification. J.I. Packer said, quote, To say that our first need in life is to learn about sin may sound strange, but in the sense intended, it is profoundly true. If you have not learned about sin, you cannot understand yourself or your fellow men or the world you live in or the Christian faith. And you will not be able to make heads or tails of the Bible. For the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of human sin. And unless you have that problem clearly before you, you will keep missing the point of what it says. It is clear that we need to fix in our minds what our ancestors would have called clear views of sin. An erroneous, ignorant, or an understanding of sin marred by half-truths will certainly lead one to a false understanding of holiness and by no means will he attain it. You and I, if we understand, if we want to grow in holiness, we must understand sin. And going beyond this doctrinal understanding of sin, going beyond the a theological or a biblical understanding of sin, going to the nook and cranny, the crevices of our own hearts, and understanding personally our sinfulness. That's, where, that's the starting point. Personalizing our understanding, a personal understanding of our own sinfulness. It is not just, yeah, I'm a sinner. It is like what Isaiah said, Woe is me. And he points to the sin that condemns him. I'm a man of unclean lips. He confesses it not in generalities. He confesses it specifically. And that's where we must begin. Clarity of seeing one's own sinfulness specifically, uniquely, in clear detail. And if I might share a little bit about myself, I, you know, I have many weaknesses as a Christian, but I have few strengths. I can't be in a pastoral ministry and be in it for over 10 years without having some spiritual strengths. And uh, one of my spiritual strengths is I know my sinfulness. I know who I am. I might not know, you know Greek and Hebrew very well. I might not know the Old Testament very well. But I know my sinfulness. I know clearly what my sins are and how they manifest and what the results are. I've studied my sinfulness clearly. And that is my strength because there is a paradoxical nature of understanding one's own sinfulness. Because it promotes humility and in the end, it exalts God, glorifies God, and honors God's grace. It is um, articulated by that Puritan prayer, Valley of Vision. Where the Puritan prayed, Lord high and holy, meek and lowly, 
Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the heights with thee, and the depths with me. Hemmed in by the mountains of my sins, I yet see thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that the lowly is to be high, that the broken heart is the contrite heart, broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of clearest vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. How beautiful is that? But how biblical is that? That the valley is a place of clearest vision. That deeper the well, that we immerse ourselves in the understanding of our sins. The brighter the stars of God's word, stars of God's purity shine. Matthew 5, 6, Christ said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why do they hunger and thirst? Because they know their own sinfulness. They know that they are not righteous. The Pharisees, they had a high view of themselves. They, they thought they were righteous. They didn't hunger for righteousness. They didn't thirst after it. The Christ said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They see the bankruptcy of their own souls. They see their own sinfulness clearly. For in them and in them only, they will hunger and thirst for righteousness. What about you? How is your understanding of your own sinfulness? Maybe you have a clear understanding of the doctrine of sin. But if you were to confess your sins, would you be hard-pressed to, in detail, recount and account to God, one by one, according to the biblical terms, the sins that you have committed against God and man? May we be experts in our own sinfulness so that we would hunger and thirst after practical righteousness. Let's move on briefly to the definition of sin. Definition of sin. Sin consists in doing, doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Sin is doing anything, saying anything, thinking anything, imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. 1 John 3, 4 Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4 It is violating the law of God. It means crossing over, casting aside, crossing out the law of God. Romans 3.23 Paul likens it to missing the mark. It is intentionally missing the standard of God. Another word that is used in the Bible is iniquity. It is the basic concept of failing to meet the standard of righteousness. It is not only the presence of sin, but there is an absence of righteousness pointing to a sin of omission. It is a sin of failing to love, failing to share, failing to give, failing to do what is right. That is iniquity. God calls it rebellion. God calls it rebellion against Himself. Isaiah 1-2 
move on to the depth of sin. Depth of sin. So many think that sin is confined to outward behavior. And they wrongly see that some areas of their lives, their hearts, their minds, their souls, their conscience is not corrupted or tainted by sin. And that is foreign concept of the Word of God. The Bible is clear that sin and corruption by sin has tainted the whole person. The whole person is tainted, polluted, and corrupted by sin. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick beyond understanding. In our flock, we're studying Genesis and Genesis 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin is a disease which pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds, our understanding, our affections, our reasoning powers, our will, all of it is infected by sin. Even our conscience is so callous, so blinded, that it cannot be depended on as our guide. This disease may be veiled under a thin covering of courtesy, politeness, and good manners, but all men in their hearts filled with sin. This past summer, we had the opportunity to go to Auschwitz and saw a place where mass murder took place. Mass murder of men, women, and children. There was an oven that was going for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everybody in the area knew what they were doing because the smell of burning flesh is so distinct that everyone knew that there was train loads of Jewish people being sent to Auschwitz and they were leaving empty and they knew what was happening. It was a disturbing place to be, disturbing things to watch and, and to consider and to hear. But all of that was produced by the heart of man. It was created. It was manifested. It was put into place by human beings, by you and I. So what is the most corrupt thing in the world? What's the most corrupt place in the world? It's not a place in Poland. It's in our hearts. It's the mind of man where every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Sin has contaminated every part of mankind's being. And yet, um, it is um, difficult to understand, difficult to confront, and difficult to even repent of, primarily because of this reason. Practical sanctification for many Christians is difficult and beyond reach of many of us because of the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 7.11 For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. How did sin enter the world? How did sin enter into this world? Serpent's deception. He lied to Eve. How does it continue in the world? How does it continue in so many believers' lives? Continues by its lies. Sin has its, has its principal author as Satan. John 8.44 He was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him, Christ said. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar. He is the father of lies. That's why sin is so deceitful, created by its father who is Satan, and Satan's a father of lies. So sin in its various forms appears to us as beautiful, appears to us as desirable. It promises us pleasure, freedom, and satisfaction. It lies to us repeatedly and well-meaning believers are ensnared by it and led astray. I thought a lot about the deceitfulness of sin this week and the many things that I've thought, of, thought through and many manifestations of sin. I saw that there is one principal lie that uh, sin uses to ensnare so many believers. And it is this. The lie of, I can stop anytime I want. I'm in control of sin. Sin has no hold over me. This sin, this habit, this decision, this practice is isolated. Anytime I want, when I put my mind to it, I can quit. I'll sin for a little while. I'll, you know, toy around with this for a little bit. But soon, I will repent and I'll fully serve God. That day will come. That lie is confronted in many places, but no one does a better job than uh, J.C. Ryle. Thoughts for young men. You know, I'm 32 years old and I read that book. I must still be young because I am so challenged and convicted by it. If you haven't read it in a while, if you've never read it, it's free on the internet. Just Google it. Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Rao. You know, women. <laughs> it's uh, for men and women. Thoughts for Young Men and Women. This is what he, he said and this quote to you. Do not be deceived. Don't think you can at will serve lusts and pleasures in your beginning and then go and serve God with ease at your latter end. Don't think that you can live with Esau and then die with Jacob. It is a mockery to deal with God and your souls in such a fashion. It is an awful mockery to suppose you can give the flower of your strength to the world and the devil and then put off the king of kings with the scraps and remains of your heart, the wreck and remnant of your powers. It is an awful mockery and you may find to your loss that the thing cannot be done. I dare say that many of you are planning on a late repentance. You do not know what you are doing. You are planning on life without God. 
Repentance and faith are the gifts of God, and they are gifts that He often withholds when they have been long offered in vain. I grant you, true repentance is never too late, but I warn you at the same time, late repentance is seldom true. I grant you, one penitent thief was converted in his last hours, that no man might despair, but I warn you, only one was converted, that no man might presume. Believe me, you will find it no easy matter to turn to God whenever you please. It is a true saying of this godly man. The way of sin is downhill. A man cannot stop when he wants to. The force of habit is strong. Habits have deep roots. Once sin is allowed to settle in your heart, it cannot be turned out at your own will. Custom becomes second nature and its chains are not easily broken. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits are like trees. They only strengthen with age. So it is with habits. The older, the stronger, the longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. They grow with our growth. Strengthen with our strength. Habit is the nurse of sin. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. Believe me, you cannot stand still in your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day, you are either getting near to God or further off. And please, listen to this godly, older pastor. Believe him. If you will not believe him, believe me. If you will not believe me, believe the Bible. That our enemy is lying to you. You are being deceived by the deceptiveness of sin, if you're counting on a late repentance, then you can toy with sin and not be burned by its effects. And all that it says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow that action, you reap a habit. Sow that habit, you reap character. You sow that character and there is your life. There is your destiny May we counter this lie that sin can be controlled by us, that we are in control. May we believe the Word of God and submit ourselves and cast ourselves at God's mercy and decide today before it is too late. That is the reality of our lives, is not? Sin is alive in our lives. Sin is alive in the believer. Romans 7.21 If you can turn there with me. 
Romans 7.21. And one day we will confront um, the book of Romans. And one day we will go through verse by verse Romans 7. But for today I just want to look at one verse that highlights to us the reality of this deceptive, powerful sin in our lives, in our hearts. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Look at that again. We see four truths about our enemy called the flesh, called sin in our flesh. First of all, Paul calls it a law. First truth is that sin living within us is a law. Now what is Paul saying? It's, an, it's a metaphor. He is referring to verse 20 and 23. Sin that is living in Paul. He calls it a law. And he uses that term to express the power, authority and control that the sin wields in our lives. It is not like God's moral law that tells us what we are to do, that reveals the character of God. No, He's talking about law in the sense where we speak of laws of nature. This is the reality. That's the reality. This is how it is. Sin is in us even as believers. It's like the law of gravity. We don't question it. We live according to it. Like the law of hunger. We don't question why we are hungry. That's what happens without food. And we live according to it. Likewise, sin in us is a law. It is powerful. It has influence. It constantly works to press us into its evil mold. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and exiles in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our souls, against your souls. Yes, Christ has defeated sin. We are possessions of Christ. He has saved us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. He reigns in our hearts and yet sin is active, alive and active in our flesh. The illustration that I give often is like what's happening in Iraq. Saddam Hussein has been dethroned. He will not regain power in that nation. And yet, every day, people are dying. And almost every day, policemen, soldiers, and U.S. soldiers are losing their lives. The battle continues. Likewise, in our lives, Christ is our ruler. He is our Lord and Master. Satan cannot snatch us from our Father's hand. We belong to God. And yet, sin in the flesh wages guerrilla warfare against our faith and scars us, hurts us, and wants us to lead us astray. First of all, it is sin living in us is a law. Secondly, we find this law inside of us. A basic, simple truth. This influence, this sin, this sin principle is inside of us. Uh, years ago, I got an email from a sister of our church, and she attached to it was a computer virus. 
And uh, I was confused. Why would you send me a computer virus? Well, of course, it was done unknowingly, unintentionally. So we spend money to, to, to buy firewalls for our computers so that we are not invaded by uh, computer viruses that will crash our hard drives. Well, many Christians have that kind of mentality. Sin is outside of us. Sin is outside of me, outside of our family, outside of our church. So long as I build these walls high up, long as I spend a lot of energy you know, building firewalls, we will be pure, we'll be sanctified, we'll be holy, forgetting that sin principle is not outside of us wanting to get in. It is inside of us and it's coming out. In Romans 7, we move from the cozy theory of troubling experience to know that we are infected personally by the sin principle. Maybe before we understood sin as like a doctrine, as a theology, as a principle, but here in verse 21, it tells us it is within us. It's like you go to school and you learn about AIDS, you learn about cancer, you learn about some awful disease, and then you go to the doctor and you find out you have cancer, you have AIDS, you have this horrific disease. That's what's happening in 721. Paul's saying, it's not them, it's me, an apostle of Christ. This sin is living within me, and therefore, to all of us. Unbelievers can't feel it. They don't understand this sin principle because they're floating with the stream. They're floating with the raging river. Paul understands it. Believers understand it. Because we're trying to swim against the stream. We're trying to go against ourselves. I was thinking about this this week, and that hymn writer articulated it so perfectly, where he said, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That is the default uh, propensity of our hearts. The inclination of our hearts is not prone to love God, prone to seek after the God I love. The natural default inclination of our hearts every day is we love God, yet we stray, we want to stray, and we gravitate towards sin. For us, inside of us, holiness is not natural. Sin is natural. That's what we experience. And that's what we're trying to go against. The third truth from this verse is that the law never rests. The law of sin and death is in a constant tug of war against the believer's desire to please God. Every time, Paul said, he wants to do what is right. Every time. This, this law of sin never rests, never takes a break. Never goes on vacation. Every time, evil lies close at hand. When the believer wants to please God, fighting sin, evil is right there. The believer wants to understand this message. The believer doesn't want to wander off in his mind or fall asleep. But what does sin want us to do? We want to fall asleep. We want our minds to wander leads us to have a dull mind and not listen to the Word of God and not study the Word of God or not obey. 
Don't you sometimes feel like Jekyll and Hyde? Every believer does. Right. Non-believers don't. They're Jekyll all the time. Right. Believers, we feel like Jekyll and Hyde because of this constant struggle. But the fourth comforting truth is that this law does not again rule our hearts. As powerful as this law of sin is, it doesn't rule the heart of the believer. The law of sin works from the inside. It ambushes believers, waging guerrilla warfare against our souls, and yet it isn't their ruler, isn't their dictator, isn't their authority. Romans 7.24 Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul continues, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Believers have achieved this victory in and through Christ. Our final point. What is the believer's response? What is the believer's right response to this sin in our flesh? What is the believer's right response to this sin in our flesh? Some want to ignore it. You know, it's like they're living in denial. They want to pretend it doesn't exist. Some believers, because they're so beat up by the sin, they've failed so many times. They've lost confidence, lost hope. They've surrendered to sin. And say, yeah. They have completely surrendered to the threat of evil. And they continue to sin willfully, compromise the daily experience. The right response is summed up in one word. It's to fight. It's to fight. And again, that's why to me, this is so cheesy, but like, you know, rock his example. I know it's made up, but he said, I can't beat him. But to go into the ring and to fight, and you know, my wife didn't know this, but at the end, Rocky lost in Rocky 1. And some of you guys still don't know that. <laughs> That's the greatness of that movie. He didn't win. He lost, like he said, but he didn't quit. And so losing at boxing is different. You lose at basketball, you lose. You lose at baseball, you lose. But boxing, when you lose, you get beat up. You, you feel the loss next day or for weeks. We can't, perfect sanctification will never be achieved on this side of eternity. We will never conquer this sin principle in our flesh. We will never attain perfect sanctification and purity. So some believers say, well, why bother? If I'm not going to win, I don't want to play. If, I'm not gonna, if I can't achieve it, I'm not even going to try. I, I, I'm not even going to start this race. No. The right response is to fight and fight all the more. Anyone who understands the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is engaged in a warfare and therefore he is to be a man of war. J.C. Ralph said, If we want to be holy, we must fight. There is no other way. True Christian is in a fight, is in a street brawl, is in war, therefore he is called to be a soldier. He is drafted into service on the day of his conversion and his tour of duty is not over until Christ's return. 
He is not meant to live a life of ease. He is not meant to live a life of apathy and security. He lives a life of risk. Pursuing Christ and fighting for the cause of Christ. He gives His life once and for all, risking everything. Why? Because His life belongs to Christ. That's what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12. Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul tells him to strateo, a military term for war. To have the mentality of a warrior engaged in a dreadful battle. Having this mentality, a survival mentality. Timothy, if you want to be holy, if you want to be effective, if you want to be mightily used by God, you must have the heart of a fighter, a spirit of a warrior. But to sad to say, so many Christians have missed that reality that there is a war raging in the world and a war raging in their hearts. They've missed that reality. They don't want to fight. They're wimps. They're wusses. They want to give in. They want to surrender. They want to quit. They want comfort, ease, and, and, and security rather than being daily engaged in spiritual warfare. Fighting against sin in his own flesh. Do we not realize that as John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That sin doesn't want a, 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 a peace treaty. Sin doesn't want to compromise. That sin in our hearts wants one thing. Wants one thing. He wants to destroy us. Wants to consume us wants to lead us astray and shame and degrade the name of God by our sinful lives. We are fighting a never-ending war against a never-dying foe who wants nothing less than to defeat us. John Owen continued, Christians must not try to coexist with sin, but should remove it completely Christians must be always at the task of mortifying sin because sin perpetually stalks him. Therefore, he must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty he cannot rest from until he rests in glory. John MacArthur, in an article in the Master's Seminary Journal, writes concerning mortification of sin, mortification involves the cultivation of new habits of righteousness combined with the elimination of old sinful habits of one's behavior. It is a constant warfare that takes place within the believer. He must see sin as a sworn enemy and commit himself to slaying it wherever and whenever it rears its head. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. He says, it is a good fight. It is a colossal fight. It is a beautiful fight. Why? Warfare is not beautiful. War is ugly, resulting in violence and bloodshed, and harms many. Paul said it's a good fight. Why? Because it produces in us holiness. It produces in us sanctification. Practical righteousness. And Paul said at the end, 2 Timothy 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What hope there is. Paul didn't conquer sin. He wasn't victorious. He wasn't perfect. He didn't attain for that which Christ took hold of him. All he says was, I fought to the end. I ran to the end. I kept what God has given to me. I didn't quit. That is what Paul experienced and that's what is expected of us to continue to fight. Uh, One final quick point. Um, The greater the sanctification, the greater the fight. The greater the fight. There's a wrong idea that as you grow as Christians, the fight becomes less intense. Like holiness becomes easier. It becomes more simpler and less complex. And as you mature, it becomes almost effortless to walk in the Holy Spirit and to be righteous. And a lot of false teachers have promoted that idea. You know, where the surrender idea, the Keswick Holiness Movement, let go and let God. You just surrender to the Holy Spirit. And then you have victory upon victory. Mountaintops to mountaintops. And you, you go weeks, months, years without ever sinning. You'll walk in holiness. That is far from the truth. The greatest sanctification. You know, um, a believer is really growing in holiness if he or she is more greatly engaged in struggle, engaged in the fight, experiencing holy sweat, experiencing the pleasing pain that Brainer spoke about. Three just uh, final thoughts for this morning. Um, now, how do you confess your sins? When you pray, what is your confession of sin like? Is it just uh, speaking in general terms? Let us grow in uh, confessing our sins specifically to God. When we confess to one another, let's confess specifically. We're using biblical terms, the sins that we have committed. May that um, cause us to grow our awareness of our own sinfulness by confessing specifically. Secondly, I wonder sometimes, um, are we fighting the same fight? You know, there's some... Christians, some ministers, some pastors, and uh, and they kind of walk with a swagger. They walk with confidence because the fight they're fighting is a doctrinal fight. The fight that they're engaged in is in ministry or evangelism. And because um, they're particularly gifted, particularly skilled, particularly intelligent or disciplined, They find ministry, it's easy for them. They find shepherding and leading, it doesn't require that much effort. And so therefore, they kind of walk with a swagger. Well, I wonder sometimes, are we engaged in the same fight? Because the fight that the elders and shepherds and the leaders of Cornerstone, the fight that we're involved in is not ministry. It's not really even evangelism or missions. The principal fight that we're involved in is fighting sin in our own flesh. 
Psalm 119.136, streams of tears, tears flow from my eyes, for your word is not obeyed. Why is David crying? Because others aren't obeying God's word, yes. But I believe in David's heart, he's including himself. He's crying first and foremost because he's not obeying God's word in his own heart. And so, believers who are fighting this fight, they don't walk with a swagger. They don't walk with a head held up high. And they walk lowly. They walk with a limp because they understand they're outclassed, they're outmatched. They're no match for the sin principle. And humbly, they walk in that valley of vision, trusting in Christ, knowing that only God grants true holiness, true righteousness. And finally, oh, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. There's um, two helps to help us see through the deceitfulness of our own sins. The first is the mirror of God's Word. Hopefully, as we study the Word of God on Sunday mornings, and second hour, and, and during flock, and all the classes that we have, as you read the Word of God yourself, and as you uh, meditate on Scripture, the Word of God alone is sufficient for you to see yourself and say, wow, I've got something on my face. I'm not clean. I've got things in my eyes. I've got dirt here, and it's good enough for you to see your own sins. But for most of us, and I myself included, that's not enough. And God has given us a second help. Mirror of godly friends. Godly friends. Men and women who will come next to you and say, oh man, you got something in your nose. It's kind of embarrassing. No one's telling you, but, and I don't want to tell you, you know, because it's kind of embarrassing, but, man, something hanging out, that's not good, brother. Right here. I'll cover it with the Bible and you wipe it off. Right? Or something, you got dirt in your face. You got, you got those eye things when you wake up in the morning. Maybe you missed it when you're washing your face. It's still there. That's what friends do. They're a mirror to you. They tell you what you really like. You have two options. You can say, no, my face is clean. It's all good. Right? I have nothing on my face. You guys are all wrong. Right? I'm right. I can't see my face, but I know I'm right. You guys are all wrong. That's one option. Or you can take the humble approach and say, thank you, brother. Oh, thank you, sister. Now I know you love God and you love me. Because I know it's not easy to point something like that out to someone else. It takes love. It takes care. It takes prayer. It takes you, causing you to take that plank out of your own eye. For you to love me, to point that out, I thank you. Will you help me take that out? And every time you see something coming out my nose, every time you see something on my eye, would you, you have a free pass? Because I have an inclination, propensity to do that in my life, have that in my life. You have a free pass to point it out in my life. Would you use the mirror of God's Word and also the mirror of God's godly friends to help you grow and practical sanctification. That is what accountability is. That is what it is. God's help given to us so that we might grow in righteousness.
Holy Father, we do thank you for we are undeserving of these truths. We are undeserving to have you care for us so much that you would reveal your will to us, that you might teach, correct, and even discipline us so that we might share in your holiness. This is indeed a privilege for us, and we thank you for your grace. Oh God, we confess that we are indeed uh, strangers to holiness, and in areas of our lives, we are not fought as we ought to have fought. We're not fighting as as we ought to fight. We have too easily compromised, too easily surrendered, too easily given to our flesh. Lord, renew our hearts by the Word of God. Help us to uh, not hide our colors, but run to the area where our enemies attacking, and may we boldly and courageously stand our ground in the Word of God, seeking to obey you at the point of our weakness, so that in every way we might be blameless above reproach on the day of your return. Lord, we understand very well that we will never be perfect this side of eternity, and therefore we long for heaven. We long to see you face to face, for when we see you face to face, we shall be holy like as, as you are. And on that day, fight will end, war, war would cease, and we will in complete peace, complete holiness and righteousness, worship you without end. Lord, we long for your return, and we know that your return is imminent. Knowing that your return is near, help us to, Lord, fight with diligence, persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.